Hello and welcome back to season three, episode four of the AA Ireland podcast. And we have a packed one today. Our guest is James Cogan, and he's going to be talking all about E10, that little bit of ethanol that's going to be in your petrol in a few months' time. We'll also be talking about what we've been driving, including the Peugeot 408. We were at the ID7 preview, a very luxurious Audi A8, and more. Plus, we'll be talking about what we're in this week and also fuel prices. Duties are coming back in and we have introduced some EV pricing into our surveys. Let's not delay and get stuck into it. So as Blake mentioned, we are back again talking about E10 Fuel. Now, we did last week speak to Kevin McPartland from Fuels for Ireland. We did touch on uh, the introduction of E10 and the fact that there hadn't been much said about it. This is about to change. We are set to hear an announcement in the next few days and uh, by the time you hear this we will have heard the announcement so we'll uh, bring you a little bit more on that as well but uh, really look what we've done this week is we've done our February fuel prices survey petrol is a little bit uh, up and diesel is a little bit down but in and around the same as as where we had seen in the last couple of weeks so not a massive increase but the big news this week is the cost of living package and there was a reintroduction or an announcement of the reintroduction at least of the duty which had been taken off on petrol and diesel so petrol will increase by six cents per litre on the 1st of june seven cents on the 1st of september and eight cents on the 31st of october which is an overall increase of 21 cents and diesel will increase by two cents per litre on the 1st of March, five cents on the 1st of June and five cents on the 1st of September and finally with six cents on the 31st of October, which is an overall increase of 18 cents. So we are seeing the duty going back up even a little bit more than than what it had been prior to the production. And what is that difference there? It's going up more than it originally had come down. Is that not right? Yeah, there is an explanation which is something to do with a bio fuel levy which uh, is is due was due to go on but hadn't gone up so that does account for some of that so yes biofuel is a uh, is it's apt that it's biofuel because that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today um with your with the interview you have coming up with james cogan but look otherwise what have we been up to over the last couple of weeks because we did have a sort of an extraordinary episode last week speaking to kevin partner but it was business as usual we've been driving loads of cars you had been to the peugeot 408 launch and you took the car home what was your impression of that car yeah, well, it was great. I was really excited because I've been in and out of Peugeot's all my life, you know, afraid at school and sports matches. So really excited to see the new 408, how it was going to take form, you know. Um, and it's a really interesting shape. You now, I, I quite like the car overall. I'd be uh, leaning towards the FEV myself and I'd be quite excited about seeing what they're going to do with the electric one when it comes out. But I had the 1.2 litre petrol, 131 horsepower. And uh, but the interior, lovely. I think it looks great. Be uh, interesting to get your thoughts on that versus the Citroen, which is for almost identical. You know, yeah, it's the, the same shape. Yeah, same shape, obviously. But for me, the Citroen shape and design works a little bit better. You had said in your piece that the 408 is probably sharper in terms of design. I think you. I think I'd agree with you in that. For me, just the package works well. I don't know, but it looks to me like. The car was originally designed as a Citroen and then Peugeot uh, kind of nicked it. I could be wrong, but that, to my eye, looks like it, uh, what happened there. Yeah, for me, they, they designed the platform. I mean, it's it, it's identical underneath the, in terms of the chassis, the, the options for FEVs, petrol engines and so on. The bodywork is it's the same shape, essentially. It's just that the lines and the creases are a lot, a lot sharper. I might prefer the, the Peugeot, I think, a little bit more modern. Um, and remember, when I went to pick up the car, you were there as well, and we reversed 
so over the Peugeot 8 and parked right beside the, mm-hmm. the C5, C5X, the Citroen, and uh, very, very similar. And for me, it was just like, just the, the Citroen just seemed to slightly date a little bit when the Peugeot was standing beside it. That's not to say that the Citroen didn't look good because I really, really do like it. Driving-wise, would you say that Peugeot was slightly harder-edged uh, dynamically than the Citroen, which are traditionally softer sprung and, and a little bit more squishy? Um, yeah, if I was in a rush through the Wicklow Mountains, I'll be taking the 408, but if I'm just pottering around and going over ramps and housing estates, the Citroen was just that little bit more comfortable. You did also travel to Milton Keynes in the UK to have a preview of the Volkswagen ID7, which is, what, could you describe it as the electric Passat? Yeah, I think so. Possibly a little bit bigger. Um, it will almost certainly be a lot more expensive when it comes out. But uh, yeah, an all-electric saloon or estate, eventually when it will have that option. And I'm so happy about that. A lot of SUVs out there. So to get something that's an estate, because we're seeing some of them die out at this stage, you know. What are the headlines on the ID7 in terms of, you know, range, potentials and batteries, etc.? Uh, well, fancy uh, electroluminescent paint was the, Which we'll never <laughs> the see. leading thing. You know, they wouldn't give us details and we were outside and we were poking and prodding the, the product guys and they wouldn't tell us what battery. <laughs> the images of you actually yeah. hitting them with sticks. We, we were only we were close to doing it, you know. Um, now, we can garner a lot. It's good. They have confirmed it's based on the MEB platform, which the ID4, the Q4 e-tron, the, the ID3 and, the, you know, the, the Cooper and so on are based on uh, the, the range figures that they're talking about is 700 kilometres and that well beats anything that's out there but the ID at the moment. But the fact that, that wheelbase is 2.97 metres long, I think it was, that suggests that there will be a little bit more space to put in an extra couple of modules above that 77 kilowatt hour battery that we've seen on the ID range. Well, so look, far. Professor Boland, if, if that's the range they're predicting, what sort of battery sizes it have to have then in that case? I, I don't think it's going to accomplish that on the 77 that we're seeing at no. the moment. So, you know, is, is an extra 10 kilowatt hour is going to be enough? We, it's, it's yet to be seen. Um, we, obviously, if you need more details in either of those cars, Blake has done videos on both. Uh, you'll find those on our YouTube channel. There's also written reviews on the aa.ie forward slash blog, uh, where you can see Blake has done a full review of the 408 and the ID7. Now, another couple of, of Audis that I had, I had a, a spell of Audis for a few weeks, which it was pretty nice was the uh, A8 PHEV and the RS3 two different cars but uh, obviously similar price actually um, when it came to it but the the A8 PHEV was an interesting one for me because the A8 hasn't sold in big numbers at all it's been very very small they did nine of them last year and most of those were dealer demos so it was a question is are the is the A8 back now that it's a PHEV adding the the extra battery what it does is brings down the CO2, 45 grams per kilometre, makes it pretty quick. And uh, yeah, I can see you shake, Blake, for, for those listening, is shaking his head when I mentioned 45 grams per kilometre. Um, PHEVs, look, are, we can be a little bit sceptical about them because the projected range in that car was 65, 68 kilometres. I didn't see a third of that, I don't think, in terms of driving. This is a very, very heavy car, big car, mated, battery mated to a three-litre, six-cylinder petrol engine. Um, but what it does do is it makes it an awful lot cheaper. This is the cheapest, and I say that in inverted commas, A8 you can buy. But it's also only a second slower than the €96,000 more expensive Audi S8. Sorry, say that again. How much the, more? The €96,000 more S8. So, yeah, this this was coming out about hundred and three grand, and you would need uh, 96000 more for uh, the equivalent S8, which is a four-litre 
V8, which um, not much quicker, second quicker, but uh, a lot more expensive. Well, let me suggest, Paddy, that if you buy this car, you're not buying it to throw it around the Nurburgring, you know. No. So, so comfort is going to be a lot more important. So, what, what did you make of it in terms of just driving it around? Well, the A, yeah, the A8 was always a more dynamic car than some of the drivers potentially s-class you know big squishy lexus the likes of those so the a was always a bit more of a driver's car um so it does that very well but it also does the so- the comfort and the softness very well for me this car just felt a little bit historic you and i spent an awful lot of time in the mercedes eqs we've driven the e-tron gt and those cars feel very today whereas the a8 even as a PHEV, felt a little bit of an antique nice car but a bit of an antique so it wouldn't be for me yeah and uh, we can see that the shift towards suvs are going and we'll see how long phev lasts and will it remain as popular but we also had another throwback a last hurrah perhaps what would you call it yeah it's a phrase i did use the last hurrah of the of the petrol engine and look the rs3 is unashamedly a a car that is going to be no more in, in in quite a short space of time absolutely bonkers thing putting out um, 400 horsepower 500 newton meters of torque 3.6 seconds to 100 kilometers per hour snarling roaring petrol engine unashamedly coughing out carbons at the back but what a wonderful driver's tool a really really fun car to drive outrageously expensive over a hundred thousand as as it sat for for us and um Thirty thousand euro more than the S3, which is already a ludicrously fast car. So look, there's literally no point in buying this car. But what a car! And you know, we're not going to be talking about these kind of cars in three, five years at all. They won't exist. So, as a farewell, what a way to go! Yeah, yeah. And I, I did drive it a little bit now, as as you know, Paddy, and people who might listen to this regularly gather that I tend to be a little bit more in the electric camp. You know, I just I I, I do enjoy them. Um, now, but the, the RS3 was phenomenally fast um, you know when you compare that to some of the high performance electric ones out there but I, I would question you though but, like, uh, how would you compare yeah. it to something like a, a Tesla Model 3 performance the RS3 is just put together a lot better yeah, you know, in terms of no the feel, when you get into the cabin, you look around, um, and you know, if I had to have one of those for ten years, which one is, uh, you know, in terms of panels and stuff, is going to work in the interior? So there's no doubt about it. But when you're talking about the Model Three performance or the, the Polestar Two, the BST, and there's just that half a second lag where you you plant your foot in the RS Three and it just goes, which gear do I want? And then it goes. Whereas in and the then other all two, hell breaks loose. It's it's immediate, you know. Um, but you you've driven all all those cars that I've just referred to as well, so you probably know what I'm talking about. And unless somebody's been in a Model Three Performance Polestar BST or something like that, you know, 400 horsepower EV, can't quite explain the immediacy, the neck breaking jolts yeah, that you get, eye watering speed. I, I I enjoyed it insofar as I enjoyed it as that sort of farewell. And you know, I had a neighbour who was very interested in it, and I was sort of saying to him, look, where's the justification in it being 30,000 euro more than the S3? The S3 is a really quick car. Yeah. And it's a thir- you know, it's, it's an MG4 more expensive than, than the uh, S3. So no, again, lovely thing, but um, wouldn't be for me. Unfortunately, I'd, I'd, I would be looking at an S3 or I would be buying a Tesla Model 3 performance. Yeah, that, but there's no doubt about it that it is 
it's an aspirational car. It's, it's it's the pinnacle by some people's standards. An exceptional and, piece of machinery. Yeah, did you the amount of people that stopped and took photographs of that as we were driving around, and we had it in scaries down at the harbour. We were doing a little bit of filming with it, and it was people just stopping, taking out their phones and, he, and hearing it as it comes by. It's like a yeah, well, they heard that swarm of angry well, bees yeah. as it walked by. Another car launched uh, last week, which we didn't get down to ourselves. Work commitments wouldn't allow, but we did have uh, Neil Briscoe cover it for us, and you can see some of that online if you want to have a look at that it was the aura funky cat and strange name great car though yeah i mean it, this looks really promising um i was expecting prices to be a little bit lower mm-hmm. when i heard that it was coming uh, i'm not saying i'm disappointed in that or anything but uh we would it's yet to see how the irish market will respond to it following the price drops from tesla mm-hmm. following what mg have done especially with their mg4 so it'll be interesting to see how the market takes it, but it's really, really interesting design. I think I think it looks great. It's a little bit different, and whether you like it or not, you have to welcome that. It's like a combination of lots of cars, a combination of a Beetle, Fiat 500, there's a bit of Porsche 911 in there. It has a small booth, though, which may hold it back for some people. It might, yeah. It's, a two, it's 240 litres yeah, or something like that. Boot. Um, which is small, but at the same time, the interior space for rear passengers is quite good for a car. Of that Equipment footprint. levels are great, and really I, yeah, good. And I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to bring that back to price and we were saying the price was a little bit higher than expected. But if you just go through that list of spec that you get with the Funky Cat and you compare that to what's on a lot of the competition, just go, how much would you have to spend in extras to get what the Funky Cat gives you as standard? But the thing is as well, Blake, is that they have supply of these. A big boat and several boats, in fact, came with lots of these and they're here and that's not a thing you can say a lot about EVs they are available and I think that will go in their favour and they have appointed some really strong dealers uh, as well Blackwater Motors and Cork have just been appointed lenders in Dublin as well who are a really long established dealer they are looking after them in Dublin so they mean business I think yeah yeah, and it's just great to welcome a new brand into the country as well and a sign of the times coming from Great Wall Motors in, in China great like huge production they have this is a gigantic company we, we don't really understand how big some of these Chinese companies are so yeah it, it's it looks like it could be a bright future for them i spent a bit of time in the toyota corolla cross last week which is well i suppose it's been coming where the corolla would be an suv it sits between the chr which is again very popular styling is dramatic and a little bit polarized for some people and the rav4 which is well established as the sort of large toyota suv so it sits smack bang in the middle costs about 40 41,000 euros starting off two liter hybrid uh, I'm going to say self-charging in inverted commas uh, petrol engine so it's uh, the only thing is right look whether you buy into the self-charging hybrid line or not it, there was no doubt that this thing was decent in terms of fuel economy for a two liter petrol engine it was really returning good numbers yeah, we did. And remember, we, we did a test because we, we, you, you drove it into work here in the mm-hmm. offices. And we both live close to each other out uh, near Drotta. So it's, it's exactly 50 kilometres to get back. And uh, I drove home that day and it took it easy following traffic on the motorway, the traffic around anyway. And we did 5.2 litres. Sorry, no, less. Four, we had it down to 4.2 litres per 100 kilometres. So that's quite efficient for... Uh, you know, a combustion engine car of that size. It's really good, and, and and you know, again, the hybrid thing for some people, it's 
it's, I'm not sure how it's marketed. It maybe is could be marketed a different way. But look, it, there's no doubt that this is using less fuel than an equivalent normal two liter petrol engine. There's no doubt about that. That that can be that can be agreed upon. Yeah, that would be interesting. I did treat that that car very very well on on the drive. You're getting extraordinary numbers. Yeah, you know. So that is the absolute best that that could do. Uh, and it would have been very interesting to have an, another two liter petrol or even a two liter diesel. You know, it, let's say something like a, a Tiguan, even which was probably a little bit bigger. But just to have those two side by side do the same trip, same conditions, and see how it would get. I think it's fair to say at least that it it does diesel fig- figures and diesel fuel economy from a petrol engine. That's that's probably as much as you can say, and, and I think that's probably fair enough. Is it an electric car? No, it's not. Is it? A, is it a? You know, is it a plug-in electric car? No, it's not. If anyone thinks they're getting an electric car when they buy one of those, they're not really. So yeah. and that was interesting. That there's a big dial uh, at the front of the, the driver's binnacle that says how much or the EV ratio, uh, and that that was interesting to see. So we were talking and debating about where they came up with the figure that we were doing 71% EV driving mm-hmm. ratio but uh, yeah we can leave those conversations for, for another that's time a, that's, maybe that's for yeah. another day you collected the Ford Mustang Mach-E yesterday yeah yeah. first impressions um, I think it looks great um, I'm still getting over the whole Mustang is now fully electric mm-hmm. uh, because I was in a Mustang about 10-12 years ago a friend of mine uh, was lucky enough to import one into Ireland and I remember going through the, the poor tunnel with that thing roaring its engine um, in a lower gear and just nice. uh, now it's fully electric and it's silent apart from small artificial noise so a little bit to get over there but I, I think it looks really interesting that huge central screen inside uh, motorway journey on the way home yesterday was incredibly comfortable a little bit of traffic so we were just ticking along and it was quite surprised at how efficient it was but the cruise control the adaptive cruise control lane keeping was very very good i want to do a little bit more testing before i make the full video review of this but initial impressions of that was very good i was a passenger in that this morning and i have to say now it was a really nice place to sit from the passenger side it's it's a quiet car obviously it's an ev but a, a really lovely place to be i also have been driving the toyota pro ace electric van which uh, I picked up yesterday, and it's really good. I really like it. Like, I love a van anyway. I, the five-year-old boy comes out of me when I jump into a van. But look, this is essentially a Peugeot, right? It's a, everything, all the switch gear, all of the infotainment system is all Peugeot in it. So it's a, it's like a Peugeot partner. Um, but this one had the 75-kilowatt-hour battery, ejected range, what? I mean, look, in reality, it was probably going to be doing about 280, 300. But um, nice thing, really nice thing. And, and we are looking at EV vans in the AA because we have to, at some stage, we have to move away from the diesel vans we have. But we are um, trialing several EV vans and this is one of them. And this is something that I think our equivalent people, our equivalent AA patrols in the UK do use some of these. So uh, watch this space. We'll see if this uh, makes sense. Well, Paddy, I think it could be time to bring in the interview now that we had with James Cogan. This was really interesting to get his perspective. So James is an industry and policy advisor for Ethanol Europe. Now, Ethanol Europe are the advocacy and I suppose lobbying arm of Clon Bio Group. So just to bear that in mind, as we're, we're, we're speaking to him, that this is somebody who is really, really involved in the industry. The company that he works for actually produce the stuff, ship it around, and a lot of that will be making its way into the fuel tanks of Irish drivers. So yeah, let's bring James on now. 
Well, James, thank you very much for joining us today. Myself and Paddy have already spoke a little bit about introducing you, but what we want to kick things off with is uh, we put out a couple of surveys on some of the social media profiles lately, and we found that about 90% of people haven't heard anything about E10, the fact that E10 is on the way. But I just thought we'd take a step back for a moment and really get to the basics. What is E10? What is ethanol? Can you just give us a general introduction to, to that? What is ethanol? Yeah, so E10 is uh, a blend of petrol that goes into the car. So uh, so at the moment we have unleaded petrol at all the pumps in Ireland and it's called E5 and that has 5% ethanol in it and when we go to E10 we'll have 10% ethanol in it. Ethanol is alcohol, so uh, the word ethanol and alcohol are synonyms and the alcohol there, the ethanol, is made by uh, the same process of, as uh, brewing or distilleries. It's made by fermenting sugars from uh, sugar into alcohol and uh, then this uh, pure uh, you know nearly 100% pure alcohol is mixed into the petrol to reduce the amount of fossil petrol in the blend and increase the amount of renewable content in it and the ethanol in in the petrol does two things it uh, displaces fossil energy in the blend with renewable energy and it also improves the way the fossil petrol uh, be, performs in the car so it improves the oxygenation levels of it so that it burns leaner and cleaner. Okay and in terms of produce you, you mentioned there that it's it's brewed or distilled is that right so are we talking yeah. about this is made in the very same way as, as gin or whiskey? It's very right? much I mean we have uh, we were um, we produce about 15% of the ethanol produced in Europe so it's quite a big operation and uh, it's essentially like a brewery so we take uh, lots of grain and we um, mill it, and then the mill goes into mash, becomes a mash, and that mash then is subjected to, it has yeast added to it, and the yeast converts the sugars in the grain into alcohol, and then that alcohol is separated from the solids. The solids become animal food, so they become a kind of a protein-rich animal feed, and the alcohol part then goes off to um, be mixed with petrol, and also goes into other uses, so hand sanitizers and pharmaceuticals and okay and tell me a little bit more about what's left over so obviously we want to cut down on waste as much as possible we produce ethanol or alcohol off that and you're saying that there's there's lots left over that can be for animal feed just tell me a little bit more about what that is yeah so the raw material is grain in our case it could also be sugar peat and um so once the sugars are converted into alcohol then the oil protein and fiber are left over and that is a very high quality protein rich animal feed that goes to substitute soy import animal feed so you know one of the big challenges of the um, um, kind of in, uh, the way the agri-food system works in the modern world is that we um, feed an awful lot of so- uh, protein-rich uh, plants to livestock to produce milk and dairy. And in the case of Europe, we're protein poor. So we're, we produce an awful lot of grains, but we produce less protein crops like soy. And so we import huge amounts of, of protein-rich crops from the Americas. What we do in Europe in our biofuel sector, and in the case of ethanol specifically, is that we take uh, some of the grains, a small amount of the grains that are produced by European farmers, and we convert it into ethanol on the one hand and protein-rich on the f- uh, uh, feed, animal feed on the other hand. Which So we, we're getting a kind of a double benefit of it. On the one hand, we're reducing the fossil fuel and carbon emissions of the petrol directly by um, replacing some of the petrol with ethanol and on the other side we're uh, replacing soy meal imports by homegrown European 
protein-rich feed. Yeah, so in the production of the ethanol that goes into E10 and other higher blend, ethanol blend petrols, um, there is no waste because essentially everything goes to both the ethanol itself and the animal feed that comes out from the oils, fiber and protein. And in our facility, we're doing uh, more and more kind of interesting and valuable things with that oil, fiber and uh, protein. We're producing ever higher protein concentrates uh, we're using the we're, we've separated out the fiber uh, uh, from the grain itself, and we're using that to produce dietary fiber, specialty dietary fibers for human consumption, and also we use that as energy within our own plant to uh, produ- provide energy to our operations, which means that we're not using fossil energy from outside, so we're lowering the carbon footprint of the business overall. Okay, that that is one thing that I was going to ask about in terms of how it's produced. I, I would have imagined that it was a fairly energy intensive thing, but you're saying that. By creating e-fuels, you are at the same time providing your own fuel to use in the creation of those e-fuels. Exactly, yeah. And so what happens then is you are looking all the time at the economic proposition of whether or not it's more economic to use uh, energy that you take in from outside, which could be fossil or renewable, or whether you're using your own homegrown generated, which is generally renewable. And in our case, uh, especially with the high energy prices at the moment and over the last year, uh, we've moved uh, very largely to home-produced renewable energy on site, uh, both in the form of um, uh, energy produced from the fibre in our grain. We could also use some of the ethanol itself to produce energy. Uh, And then we've invested extremely intensively in energy recovery from the system. So uh, it is a very energy intense process. There's an awful lot of kind of heating and cooling involved. And if you can recover uh, energy out of heat or vapour, which we do uh, through kind of investments in quite innovative technology, we've reduced our exposure to energy costs external energy costs yeah so so this is if you if you're when you're distilling the grain obviously you have to create a lot of heat so then you yeah. would take that heat and create hot water from that that you can then use you can recover energy like from that heat and you can recover energy from the vapor okay yeah. and is, is it a significant amount we're not talking about you've you know you've produced uh 0.01% of your energy. No, it's, it's obviously a significant amount. It's really significant. It's the d- difference between, um, you know, it's in the, let's say, well over half of our energy would be self-produced and yeah. we could go to more. Okay, that, that, yeah, that, that definitely is significant. Let's move on just a little bit. And so we now understand what, what ethanol is, how it's made, and we know that E10 is, is arriving. According to the surveys that we've mentioned already, very few people had heard about it, and we know there's a press conference coming, but why has it been so quiet to date anyway? Yeah, well, uh, okay, so it's a, uh, it's a good question. Uh, uh, on From you know an actual substantive point of view, it's a technical change to the fuel blend. No, not greatly different to technical changes to fuel blends that happen a couple of times a year anyway that were not aware of as drivers and as consumers of petrol because we really don't need to be we put it, we put the fuel into our tanks and we drive the vehicles and that they've you know there's been a tweak in the formula in in that fuel it, we don't need to know about it. and the same with e10 it doesn't actually affect us in any way we don't have to make any decisions regarding it it doesn't change our uh, the way we fuel the vehicle doesn't change the way we use it. It's a very minor change in the actual formula. The petrol already has 5% ethanol in it, has had for a decade or so. Um, so we're going from 5% to 10%. It's a 
really, really minor change. Right. Uh, just to be, because um, I'm, I'm sure I might have thought this myself before I'd done a little bit of research about it, but are we only talking about putting it into petrol cars? Is this the same as biodiesel? Uh, can you put ethanol into diesel? What? How does this work? Uh, petrol is a very different chemical uh, compared to diesel, and they're consumed and used by engines in very different ways. So, so that's why you can't put petrol into diesel car and vice versa. And uh, ethanol is what we blend into petrol in order to reduce the fossil fuel content of it and therefore reduce the fossil emissions of it. And biodiesel is a very different thing to ethanol. Biodiesel is a vegetable oil, essentially, whereas ethanol is alcohol and they're very completely different chemicals and they produced in different ways. Okay, so I have in my mind now that ethanol is 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 the same as alcohol that we might get in our whiskey or gin, obviously produced slightly different. But when we want to put something into our diesel, it's just the oil, be it sunflower oil or, or yeah, it's like that. it's it's slightly processed vegetable oil, which could be for the, in the case of Ireland, it's mostly used cooking oil. Okay, quite quite different. So if anybody's thinking about saving them a few cents, do not pour uh, sunflower oil into your your petrol tank. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but on that uh, note of making kind of mistakes like that, or how does it affect cars? Um, you've touched on this already. You're saying that there's there's no substantive difference now that we're moving from E5 to E10. But we have heard some concerns, and uh, I'd like to get your point of view. Maybe you know, maybe it's sensationalism, but there's some people who are concerned that if they've classic cars, this won't work and might damage the engine. Is any are there any cases like this? Is this true? I've researched this a lot, obviously being in the business and, and being aware that this is something that um, comes up every time there's an introduction of E10 in a, in a country in Europe. Um, uh, alcohol has been used in fuel since the beginning uh, of the use of internal combustion engines. I mean, you know, Henry Ford's first vehicles ran on alcohol. So alcohol has been uh, is has has been a fuel traditionally forever. Um, it's come in and out of uh, use uh, over the years, for instance, in times of shortage of fossil fuels, so during wars or during, um, you know, in countries that have problems accessing it or countries that particularly want to use more alcohol, like France at the moment, uh, the proportion of alcohol in the petrol rises substantially above 10%. And um, there's never been, a, you know, issues uh, with that in the use of any vehicles in the in the performance or use of any vehicles. Um, E10 has been the only, E10 and higher uh, blend uh, of ethanol petrols in the USA have been standard there for a couple, couple of decades and have been widely used for since the 1970s. Uh, that, you know, if you consider that there's 300 million petrol vehicles in the US and that and that also extends to, you know, snow plows and gardening equipment, um, uh, over that, over those decades, there have been well over a billion vehicles have been running, of every age, make and model, have been running on E10 or higher ethanol blend fuels in a country where litigation is very normal and there hasn't been a single instance of litigation or, um, you know, any any case brought, uh, uh, you know, in relation to the use of ethanol in fuel. Okay, so would I be going too far to say that pretty much any car in Ireland that's driving around will be okay with this switch and it won't make a difference. That's yes, you would. fair to say. It is fair to say. There hasn't, you know, in the world there are, um, I, I guess there's a billion or so petrol cars running around uh, between Brazil, the US, Germany, uh, Brazil, US and Europe. Um, a huge proportion of them have been running on E10 or higher blends for a very long time and there simply is no body of evidence that would indicate that any kinds of vehicles have any issues or yeah. problems running on E10. 
that, that's good to hear and I think that that is a concern that some people may have had um, and it, it's great to get that put to bed really I have a, I have a vintage car myself from the 1950s and it, it came from the US where it ran on E10 it's now in Ireland running on E5 it is um, completely factory original um, I have no concerns about it. there is nothing in that car that could have a difficulty with E10 there is no fit technical physical aspect of the car that would have it yeah, yeah. That really is putting your money where your mouth is if you're willing to put it into your own car. And I have to ask, because this is a motoring, uh, we're in a motoring trade and it's a motoring podcast, what is the, the classic car that you have? It's an, an MG TF from 1955. Oh, nice. Absolutely. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and then let's just, there's a couple more concerns that I want to address as well and get your take on this, because I know that there's some people going to be listening to this that will have an issue. This might be uh, just a fundamental issue with how it's produced. It might be about the environment, about land use, etc. So can we just spend a couple of minutes talking about that? So there, are, uh, one of the, the criticisms is that it's going to take too much land to produce this. So can we just get a little bit more of, a, of an understanding as opposed to just saying well more biofuel will be more crops for that and less for food and it's very easy to sensationalize these things but let, let's just get down into a little bit more detail on that what what is your, your stance on that how does that work what are the numbers behind it yeah well okay so um uh, at the moment in europe on average about seven eight percent of the petrol is actually comprised of ethanol um, so some countries have zero ethanol in their petrol, some have 5%, some have 10%, some have a little bit. In France, there's 85% ethanol uh, at nearly half of petrol stations. Um, and uh, the ethanol is produced primarily from wheat and maize grown in Europe. And um, the amount of wheat and maize involved is a tiny fraction of Europe's overall production of wheat and maize. We are a grain superpower worldwide. We produce volumes of it that are, you know, 10 times more than we would, we would need for basic nutrition, but we use it f primarily for feeding animals, but we also use it for processed foods and, and then your basics like staples like um, bread and pasta. So the amounts involved are tiny compared to the overall production, like, you know, low single digit percents. And then if you consider that half of what comes in goes back out to the farm in the form of protein-rich animal feed, replacing soy meal imports. That factor alone uh, virtually makes the kind of ethanol part of it a, a byproduct of a protein feed sector. Um, so, you know, if you take um, the in the UK, they have a couple of ethanol plants running from wheat. That wheat is essentially um, the, the fact that it's going to half into protein-rich feed replacing soy meal imports essentially makes the ethanol side of it kind of zero impact from an environmental point of view. Um, clearly, you know, in an ideal world, humans would have no impact on resources at all. Uh, so what we're in, but we're in a situation where uh, we have a range of options as a society and we have to make the best choices that we can with the resources that we have. And uh, in the case of fuel that goes into vehicles that produces carbon emissions um, using some of, of a small proportion of a very large crop output is a very good healthy environmental option um, all things that we consume can have um, supply chains that need to be assessed so because there are options for good or bad versions of everything that we consume. So you could have uh, electricity going into um, electric vehicles uh, that it comes from heavily polluting coal plants or could come from solar panels on top of bu the buildings we live in. 
And likewise with renewable fuels that go into vehicles, so biofuels and other kinds of renewable fuels, they could have, um, they could produced in, in sustainable, environmentally friendly ma- manners, or they might not. In the case of the ethanol that goes into Irish petrol, it's extremely um, uh, heavily policed, you know, regulated. Uh, so there is um, sustainability criteria all along the supply chain and these are enforced very rigorously so if you were putting um, uh, E10 into your car in Ireland you could potentially find out what farm that came from and and um, what the kind of history of that fuel was. So James I'm just trying to get my head around um, and, and for me you know it was fana- fascinating to say you know like blue whale is the same weight as so many double decker buses and this just helps people visualise or get a figure for it so you know to, to produce a litre of ethanol takes x amount of acres or is there any sort of way of quantifying that yeah it's a very good question um so um i you know the numbers are quite straightforward um so a normal passenger car uh, uses about a thousand liters of fuel a year so 100 of those would be ethanol and to produce 100 liters of ethanol you'd need something like a 30th of a hectare and bearing in mind that that 30th of hectare is also going to produce um, protein-rich animal feed that's going in mostly into the dairy and milk sectors. So you're getting both of those things still for your, you know, 20th or 30th of a hectare. Okay, it's a little bit less than, than I had thought, because this is obviously going to be a concern for people if we start uh, apportioning so much land to producing petrol, there's less to, to feed and stuff like that. But the, the numbers aren't as big as I was, as expecting, actually. You know, there's a very heated uh, discussion that goes on over the use of resources to feed people all the time. And um, it's a very legitimate uh, discussion. Uh, But if one looks at where we use our agricultural resources, uh, especially where green grains are concerned, and that's where we are, uh, the three quarters of those grains are going to feed animals for dairy and milk, uh, for milk and meat. And... um, the rest is going to processed food and staples. And within that, 30 or 40% gets wasted in the supply chain because um, f- basic food commodities are very cheap and they're very abundant. And so it's never it's it's never the actual availability of the raw material that's the, as an issue. It's how it's used and how efficiently it's used. Um, the Using it to produce ethanol, which goes into a mix of um, or ethanol and animal feed, uh, you could... You know, there's zero waste in that insofar as it all gets consumed uh, in the supply chain. Um, it's uh, compared to... You, you have to take make a judgment then yourself as to whether uh, using uh, all of that high volume of grain in um, our modern agri-food system uh, or using it for other um uh, applications such as energy or such as industrial purposes because a lot of the ethanol we produce goes into pharmaceutical and inks and solvents and hand sanitizers and so on um they're yeah they're, you know their judgments that society has to make as to what's the best use of our resources but the uh, biofuels that we have in fuels in Europe have been very thoroughly vetted uh, it, it's not something that is goes um unscrutinized by you know, an army of regulators and scientists. So that everything that goes into your car has been, you know, has, has to pass the an extraordinarily kind of battery of environmentally, of environmental and, and kind of quality criteria. And we do have much stricter re- rules and regulations and the same goes for importing of meat products from other parts of the world. The EU is, is, is a lot stricter. Um, I just wanted to, 
to touch on one thing that we, we, we mentioned earlier on, which is where the, the ethanol is produced. Um, is it produced in Ireland or is it all produced on continental Europe? Or so when we're, And this is specifically about Ireland as we go from E5 to E10. The ethanol that's going to be in, in our tanks as we drive home or take a bus home later on, is that Irish, European? Um, it, it it's certainly none of it's Irish because we are very little of it is Irish. Um, uh, we produ- there's some produced in Ireland from um, the dairy industry byproduct, which is very good. So from kind of waste sugars in in milk, that, uh, and uh, the rest of it comes from Europe principally. Though there is some that comes from outside of Europe, and the amount that comes from outside Europe is de- de- dependent on kind of international trade. Factors. At the moment, the amount coming from outside Europe is actually much higher than it is traditionally. And that's because of the energy crisis in Europe at the moment, because energy is very uh, expensive in Europe at the moment. Uh, crop prices have gone up as a result. So the overall production of ethanol in Europe, the cost of production has gone way up. And that means that Brazilian and North American ethanol is very competitive. So and it is, uh, you know, so the proportion of imports has gone up this year. Hopefully that will rebalance back over the next couple of years. Ireland could be self-sufficient, it could be an exporter of ethanol. If we were to um, develop an industry based on plant protein, so we, uh, as well as producing ethanol, we are producing more and more protein-based feeds for animals and foods for human beings. And the focus of our business is shifting to the plant protein side of things. So we're, you know, the idea is that we're taking the grains that we're using at the moment and we're um, really um, producing, uh, developing very kind of high quality protein based feeds and foods. And uh, if uh, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that we would do that in Ireland, that one could do that in Ireland using the grains that are produced here. And uh, in that case, you end up actually with lots of starch and sugar that aren't part of the protein side of the plant uh, and that can be very readily you know, converted into ethanol for fuel use and for other things so it, yeah but, you know from a kind of environmental technical feasibility okay I'm aware that uh, time is moving on now we want to just wrap this up so let, let's just kind of finish off on what, what's the, the future of, of ethanol? We've got just, we're going from E5 to E10. Are we likely to see E20 in the next couple of years? Are we likely to see ethanol production in Europe increasing um, volatility of it? Just what, what's the, the bigger picture over the next kind of few years? Yeah, there's two ways we could go. We could go to something like E20. Um, and so all the petrol uh, uh, available goes you know, from E10 to E20 at some stage. Uh, and that's definitely... Um, a very good way of looking at things or we could go the French option which is to make a certain amount of it 85 so up to 85% ethanol and so any uh, French petrol car driver can go in and fill the car up with E85 petrol and that gives the French government and French society a a very handy kind of mechanism whereby they can increase or reduce the amount of renewable fuel in their petrol uh, very easily because the E10 is up to 10% and E85 is up to 85% and doesn't matter to, um, it doesn't make any difference to the car itself or the fuel itself uh, whether or not you actually reduce or increase the amount of ethanol as long as you stay within that number. Um, So it could go either way. And uh, from the point of view of Ireland's reaching its kind of transport decarbonisation goals in uh, over the next decade and you know the government's objective is to have um, uh, carbon emissions and transport by 2030 and um, at the moment biofuels are 
essentially comprise 100% of the renewable en- energy in the transport sector in Ireland at the moment. Um, so, you know, 100 or 200 times more than renewable e- electricity. So renewable electricity is still essentially negligible, whereas um, biofuels are doing all of the work. And um, we could readily double or treble the contribution that biofuels are making in Ireland. Yeah, it's, it's an absolutely uh, fascinating topic. I really wanted to thank you for, for coming on and taking the time to speak to us and explain the background, what ethanol is, how it's made and so on. And it really seems that it's going to be part of uh, a blended approach to how we are decarbonising not just transport, but the rest of our economy over the number of years. So, yeah, James uh, Cogan, thank you very, very much for coming into us today. Interesting chat there with James. We are really set to hear more on E10. I think, by and large, there's not really much to worry about with E10. There has been a little bit of hysteria, a little bit of murmurings about classic cars going wallop. Some of it's hearsay. The reality is that 99% of people will put this E10 in the fuel in the car. They won't notice anything. So I think this is, is it's probably not much to see here. The government ha- is coming out to speak about it. I think they do have been a bit slow in coming out and explaining it, but maybe they just wanted to avoid some of the potential hysteria and hearsay about the fuel. But what was your impression of of uh, the conversation with James? What did you come away with anyway? Well, I think it was fascinating to get the background of ethanol as in what is it? How is it made? Where do we get the grain from? The questions like that. It's very, very easy to to either get hysterical proactively or, or negatively against a fuel like this. And I think we have to keep an open mind to it look into how it's made why it's made and and so on so it was great to get that detail where he explained the process and you know basically compared it to whiskey and gin you know you just distill it you get the the alcohol off it now a little bit uh, cheaper than a bottle of nice whiskey but you know well, and uh, something kevin mcpartner had said is that in france that they have are capable of driving on even bigger blends like 85 in terms of ethanol so interesting to see where that direction of travel goes because Look, EVs are expensive and EVs are great and we love them, et cetera, et cetera. But in the short term, there's a, there are a few stages and anything we can do for people as well who, who just can't afford an EV, who are driving a petrol car and who want to do their bit, this is at least the right direction of travel. Yeah, like it, it will reduce carbon emissions. Now, we, and I put this to, to James in the interview as well, that there are going to be problems that spin off from that. Now, he was quite dismissive of the idea that if you convert land usage over to making crops for petrol as opposed to food and he said no this just it doesn't matter at all it won't equate to it it's a drop in the ocean uh, will that be true as we increase the amounts so that the land usage um, has the land been looked after extra use of fertilizer so there's a lot of of, of of ways of thinking about this but it's going to reduce carbon in in the short term and one of the the issues that if we wait for the perfect solution nothing will be done in the meantime so every little thing that helps has to be welcomed but with, at the same time, a very, very strong eye on the future and where ultimately we need to get to. One of the things that we talked about this week uh, added on to our average fuel prices was something that you did some maths on was uh, in terms of the EV figures or EV running costs rather. So we know that it costs about two grand a year to run an, uh, a petrol car, a little bit less for diesel because diesel cars tend to go further. The fuel's a little bit cheaper as well at the moment. What? How does this? How does how do EVs factor into this? So, the average EV owner driving seventeen thousand kilometers. What sort of figures are they looking at in terms of paying? 
Yeah, well, we, as you said, we, we did some maths on this and we, we double checked and we got a lot of different sources of, of prices from people charging at home on night rates, public network and so on. And we we calculated that at, at the moment, um, based on, you know, the February survey that, that we've just done, that it would be 1,138 1, compared to, and you've done the maths on that, is about 1,600 for diesel and mm. give or take 2,000 for petrol. So still significantly cheaper. But the, the thing that's when you're talking about how you fuel an electric car and the cost of that, there's such a wide variance. Now, if we want to find, you know, we go down to this maybe smaller country towns and you might find petrol four or five cent cheaper there. You go onto motorway, be yes. a little bit more. Yeah. But it's always going to be what? It's there, there, five right. to 10 cent, give or take, let's say. On an electric car, it could be five, six, seven hundred percent difference. So just to remind people, yeah. what is the cheapest way to fuel an EV? Well, I, and I don't say this flippantly, but solar on your roof will be Mm-hmm. free you know apart from the installation costs of course but after that there's there's night rates so if you've got a smart meter you can get a night boost uh, it depends on which company you go for and that can be as cheap as you know in and around 10 12 13 wow. cent per kilowatt hour however you know on some of the longer journeys that we've done testing cars paddy we could be paying 75 80 cent per kilowatt hour so it's a huge difference in price there we had looked at the figures before and we reckoned it was about 70 if electricity got to about 74 cents per kilowatt hour that that would be the equivalent of petrol or diesel in terms of running an EV that's about right yeah and I think at that time perhaps petrol and diesel the prices were a little bit higher so there's 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 two there's levels petrol and diesel can go up and down as well as the electricity prices so it's hard to find a comparison but I think it's still very very safe to say that fueling your electric car is still cheaper you can find an extreme situation where it's not perhaps but in general it's still a lot cheaper but back to petrol and diesel, if you want to save some money, which we all do on uh, our petrol and diesel, do we have a solution here at the AA? Well, I think we do, Paddy. You could download the AA app today, log on and rescue if you want, browse from a wide range of benefits like discounted fuel, and that is three cent off your fuel at a Circle K garage. Yeah, and you get discounts off your sandwiches, you get discounts off car washes. It really is worth doing. So if you have an AA product, if you're a member, if you have insurance, etc., you can download the AA app and you can immediately avail of those savings. So it makes sense. Just go do it. It's very quick to do. Very quick and easy. If, if I can manage it on my phone, then uh, you listening to this, you can too. Okay, Blake, that's it for this week's AA Ireland podcast. As ever, you will find us across an exhaustive list of social media platforms, things like Twitter, things like TikTok, things things like Instagram, Facebook, you name it, we are there. And of course, you will find all of our material on the AA Ireland blog. Blake is doing great work on YouTube, blazing a trail, making uh, informative new videos. But uh, look, if you want to follow us, we are on all the platforms. And do subscribe to us here on the AAR and podcast as well. And that's it for this week. Uh, And that's it from me and uh, from Blake. Thank you very much for listening. Be safe and see you next time.